Praise the Lord. Let's um, open up our Bibles now to Acts 1.8 and then 2.16 through 21. Acts 1.8, We are still in the book of Acts. I know it seems like we're in chapter 2 forever, but I do promise we're going to get out of chapter 2, and then we're going to move through the rest of Acts pretty quickly, much more quickly. But Acts 1A, 2, 16 through 21. If you're joining us in person, you'll see it on the screen behind me. If you're joining us online, you'll see it on your screen at home. This is God's word. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then 2, 16 through 21. And this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we give you all the glory. We thank you so much, Lord. We thank you for the amazing and life-transforming work you're doing all around the world. We thank you for the good work in Manila and in Malawi. Thank you for the opportunity this year to partner with you. Father, we don't bring anything. We're not starting anything. We're merely seeing what you're doing and joining. Like Jesus said, I don't do anything, but watch what the Father is doing and join. And so, Lord, help us to do the same. Help us to just join in your work. And Lord God, your work is not only out there, but is right here as well. It's right here in Riverside. And I pray that you would help us to begin right here. This is our Jerusalem, that we would begin here and from here go out into the nations. So Lord God, we thank you. Father God, speak through your word. Reveal the truths that are here that are oftentimes so easily missed so easily glossed over, but Lord, we want to be careful students of your word. Father, reveal to us what you have to say here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so we are still in the book of Acts this year and all throughout this year, and this is the year of witness. And last week we looked at the big picture of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So basically we looked at what happened at Pentecost from 10,000 feet up in the air. What I mean is we saw the big picture And so we saw the outpouring of the Spirit that finally came after 10 days when Jesus ascended up to heaven. And with the outpouring of the Spirit, several other things came with it. So last week we saw how it brought a radical new age. It brought a radical new relationship with God and immediate access to God from that point on. A radical new people, the Spirit people had arrived. And then finally, a radical new salvation It was no longer through obedience to the law. It was no longer through all these different rituals, but it was now centered on repentance and faith in what Christ has done, his finished work. So that was monumental. We saw all that. That is the big picture. Well, today we're still going to look at the outpouring of the Spirit one more time. And I promise, like I said, we're going to move through the rest of Acts a lot more quickly. But today, I want to look at this one more time, and we're going to look at the outpouring of the Spirit much more up close. So I want to look at the outpouring of the Spirit at the level of the spiritual gifts or gift that was given. So last week, we looked at Pentecost, looking at the stars above, kind of like the big picture up high, right? We were looking at it at that level. Today, I want to look at Pentecost really up close kind of like looking at molecules, but down here, getting down to that level. And what I want to look at today is specifically the gift of prophecy that the Spirit gave to every believer. And I believe when you read the text of Acts, it's clear. God gave the gift of prophecy, why? For the purpose of being witnesses. For the purpose of being witnesses. So there's a connection that Luke makes in the text It's clear as day if we're paying attention. But God gave this amazing gift, the gift of prophecy. I believe that is the power that came 
in order so that we would be witnesses for Christ. And today's message may raise more questions than answer them, but I'm willing to take that risk. And the reason is because my goal for this message is that we would become more biblical, okay, not less biblical. I'm not talking about something outside of Scripture and, hey, let's focus on this. But my goal today is to push us to be more biblical. And being more biblical isn't as simple as you think. Because as much as people like to beat their chest and walk around thinking, oh, I'm biblical, right? I don't know about you fools, but I'm biblical. <laughs> people say that oftentimes. But the Bible is offending. It offends everyone. See, it's not that easy to be biblical. Because the moment you are committed to that, the Bible offends everyone. What I mean is there are things you believe to be absolutely true. Things that you know it should be this way, and yet... The Bible will come along and then challenge that. The Bible offends everyone. You know, I remember one of my professors in seminary, he admitted to this, to the entire, he admitted this to the entire class. But I remember one time he wrote uh, 1 Timothy 4.14 or maybe projected it on the board. And then he read, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. And then afterwards, this professor admitted, you know what? I don't know what to, what to do with this verse. And he admitted, I don't practice this. And therefore, he was implying that he doesn't really believe this. And I guess you could explain it away, this verse, by saying the practices of the early church no longer apply today. But on what basis? Okay, what passage in the New Testament teaches that? And so the professor was kind of explaining all this. And so being more biblical is not as simple as you think. The Bible offends everyone. It will challenge us, and it will challenge us in the areas that we cling to, like the teachings of our favorite pastor or churches, all the things we kind of picked up along the way when we were younger. But the Bible will come along and challenge these things, and no doubt those teachings are good. They have benefited us, but people cling to them is what they know, right? And instead of clinging to these teachings of our favorite pastors and churches, I want to constantly challenge us to see what the Bible really says and then cling to that. So that's my goal for today. And we're only going to be scratching the surface, but I hope that we can really just begin to see what is the Bible really saying here and then begin to understand it and then commit to that. And so today I want to get down to the molecular level and I want to look at the gift of prophecy that was given to the disciples at Pentecost and not only to them, but given to all Christians afterwards as the prophecy of Joel makes so clear, given to the great and small, young and old, male and female believers. And the way I want to look at this today is by looking at four questions that I believe the text raises. But here are the four questions. What is the relationship between being Jesus' witnesses and the spiritual gift of prophecy? Okay, what is that relationship? Number two, what is the nature of the spiritual gift of prophecy? Number three, what is the duration of the spiritual gift of prophecy? And number four, and finally, what should I do with the spiritual gift of prophecy? What am I supposed to do with this? So those are the four questions, and hopefully as we kind of scratch the surface, we're going to begin to see hopefully what God really says here. So first, what is the relationship between being Jesus' witness and the spiritual gift of prophecy? Now, earlier I said Luke makes a clear connection between Jesus' promise in Acts 1-8 and the gift of prophecy that was poured out in Acts 2. And I want us to see this, but look at Acts 1-8. Jesus said, now he's talking to the disciples, right? After he died, rose again, this is right before he ascended to heaven. And he said, don't go anywhere. Stay here in Jerusalem. Why? Because you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So there, Jesus connected these key words together. You might want to underline, circle them, but power, Holy Spirit, and witnesses they're all connected together in this great promise Jesus gave. Power, Holy Spirit, witnesses. Again, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you will what? Be my witnesses. So simple, right? Clear. So all of that was to happen at Pentecost, and then when Pentecost finally came, Peter explained, he rose up, 
And by the way, this literal thing happened to him. That promise was fulfilled in Peter. But when the Holy Spirit came upon Peter, he became God's witness. So he stood up and then he quoted from the book of Joel, Acts 2, 16 through 17. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old man shall dream dreams. Now, real quick, these dreams and visions are likely a form of the gift of prophecy. Different Bible scholars interpret it that way. Martin Luther himself saw it that way. But it's not talking about a lot of different things here. But it's mainly talking about one thing. The gift of prophecy and two different forms of that are dreams and visions. He dreams and visions. So just kind of tuck that away in your mind. And then, so dreams and visions is a form of prophecy. And then Joel mentions prophecy again to end that, to end that uh, prophecy of Joel. Verse 18, even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall what? Prophesy. Okay, we can't gloss over this. We can't skip over this. So clearly, Jesus said, you're gonna receive what? Power from who? The Holy Spirit and then what? You'll be my witnesses. 10 days later, that got fulfilled, Pentecost. The spirit came with power they became witnesses, and then Peter said, here's what happened. You received the gift of prophecy. This quote from the book of Joel was all about the gift of prophecy. So Jesus promised power when the Holy Spirit came, comes upon you, and then you will be my witnesses. And the way you became witnesses, the way we're going to become witnesses, is by receiving power. And what is that power? I don't know how else to explain this text, this narrative of Acts 1 and 2. It is the gift of prophecy. Now, I'm not saying that the power they received on that day was only the gift of prophecy. I'm not saying that. There were many things they received, probably supernatural peace, joy, boldness, a deeper understanding of the scriptures, the gospel. But at a minimum, you could even say primarily the power they received was according to Peter, his explanation, the gift of prophecy. And it was a divinely empowered kind of speech. And we're going to see that more later. But I believe that's what they received, is this kind of divinely empowered speech. And this shouldn't surprise us, brothers and sisters, because being a witness for Christ requires speaking. Amen? You got to talk. So it's not a surprise that finally when the power came to be witnesses, what did God bring? Divinely empowered speech. Amen? So there was a movement years ago, I remember, where everyone walked around saying, preach the gospel, preach the gospel, and use words when necessary. Do you guys remember that? They even made maybe t-shirts and bumper stickers with that. But preach the gospel and use words if necessary. In other words, it's more important to preach the gospel with your actions and your life That comes first, and then, if you have a chance, use words. So I remember that. That was very popular. So actions and how we live are important. Yes, surely they matter. But you can bake cookies and give them to your neighbor every single day, amen? (laughs) And you can bring cookies with a big smile, but if you never open your mouth and share the gospel, you are not a witness. You're just being a friendly neighbor. You are not a witness, So being witnesses requires speech. Listen to Paul, Romans 10, 14. How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So clearly the emphasis there is what? Spoken word. It is our speech. Romans 10, 17, Paul also said, Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Implication there is somebody speaking those words. We must speak out God's word. But is it enough to just speak something that you heard or maybe even the gospel accurately? Is it enough to just speak and repeat God's word, even the gospel? Is it enough to just know it and say it like we would anything else? You know, in the way that you would like maybe convey information about the Middle East to somebody or maybe, you know, the last thing you heard about the economy. I mean, is it enough to just tell somebody in that way? And according to what we see in Acts, no. 
No, it's not enough. Because Jesus made it so clear. The disciples needed to speak in order to be witnesses, and their speech needed to be empowered. Amen? They needed empowered speech. And that's because what they had was not enough. And this is amazing when you realize what they did have prior to Pentecost. But think about what the disciples did have, and yet it wasn't enough. But it says in Acts 1-2, Jesus had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So here, they have the clear teachings of God, the commands of God from Jesus himself. That wasn't enough. It says in Acts 1-3, to them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs. They even had literally the risen Christ in front of them showing them proofs of the resurrection. Feel the holes in my hands. Feel the hole in my side. That wasn't enough. They had living proof of the resurrection. It wasn't enough. It says in Acts 1-4, Jesus was appearing to them during 40 days speaking about the kingdom of God. They had divinely inspired teaching from Jesus himself again. On the kingdom of God, again, that wasn't enough. We have far less than they, they did. And even what they had was not enough to turn them into effective witnesses for Christ. You know, a few weeks ago, we saw how critical believing the gospel is. Okay, if you're going to be a witness, you must absolutely know the gospel. And next week, we're going to look at Peter's sermon on the gospel. We're going to see how he breaks it down. But we need to know the gospel, amen? And yet... If you only had knowledge of the gospel, but no empowering of the spirit, then there is really no witness. There really is no true, effective witness. I mean, God can use anything, right? God used a donkey speaking. God can use me, right? Amen, I'm a donkey. But unless you truly have empowered speech, Jesus said, don't go anywhere. Don't leave. Okay, you've been taught from me for 40 days, you have proof of the resurrection, but that's not enough. Don't go anywhere, Jesus said, because that's not enough. And how many of us, we go, pew, right? Oh, yeah, I, I graduated from Jesus U, right? Jesus University. I'm, I'm ready. <laughs> Thank you, Helen. Helen, I said everything. It's so great to have her back, by the way. <laughs> She's visiting from Boston. But where was I? I'm so distracted. Um, Jesus U. It's not enough, right? It's not enough to even be taught from Jesus himself. We must be empowered by the Holy Spirit. So they needed the lavish outpouring and infilling of the Spirit to give them this extraordinary power. And now, okay, we're getting down to the molecular level, right? What is this power? We just kind of keep it vague. Oh, just power, right? Give me power. Is that me, God? No, God is saying, this is the power I'm talking about. I'm going to give you empowered speech. It's your tongue. It's your mouth. So the baptism of the Spirit especially upon their tongues and their speech was the spark that would light this fire and this movement. Without it, the wood wouldn't get kindled. You know, just really brief story, but I remember one time a group of guys in our church went camping. I think it was in um, Joshua Tree. And on the first night, we gathered all this wood. We were, you know, getting all excited. And then guess what? Nobody brought a lighter. (laughs) Nobody brought a match. And we were too dumb to go over and ask somebody else, you know, in the next camp over for a light. So we spent the entire first night in the cold. <laughs> we just had all this wood piled up and we're just all like, oh, it's so great here. But that's the way it would be if you have the word itself. Even Jesus himself teaching you the accurate gospel, even faith in the resurrection, and yet no empowerment of the spirit, no empowered speech. And so over the years, I've heard so many people say, you know, I'm not ready to share my faith. Why? Because I haven't been to seminary, I don't really know the Bible, you know, I don't know that much theology or apologetics, those things are all great. We should learn these things. I don't even know how to answer people's objections, how can I be a witness? And yet, more than theology and apologetics, or even knowing facts about the Bible, if you don't have the empowering presence of the Spirit, especially upon your speech, there is no witness. Okay, is that clear? I just want that to be absolutely clear. So that is the connection that Luke makes. So question number two, what is then, this brings us to the next point, what is then the nature of the spiritual gift of prophecy? What is the nature of the spiritual gift of prophecy? Look at verses 16 through 18. 
But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So here we begin to see the nature of this empowered speech that God gives. Well, first of all, this gift however we understand it, it was given to all believers. All believers. Not just the 12 disciples, not just the 70 or 122 at Pentecost. All believers throughout this age, young and old, great and small, male and female. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this prophecy from Joel that Peter quoted says you have it. You will receive it. So this is the nature of this gift in the last days which we are living in. It is given to all believers without exception. So that's the first thing we need to understand is universal. But what exactly is this gift of prophecy? What exactly is this ability to prophesy? Well, first, let me mention what it's not. But based on the New Testament, we can assume it probably isn't what the Old Testament prophets did or what the apostles did. What I mean is, it probably isn't giving divinely authoritative, error-free words from God. That's probably not it. Okay, you are not given this ability to speak scripture. So why do I see that? Well, first, like Peter said, this gift is operating in every believer now, right? So every single believer has this ability. And if we are all quoting scripture now, or not quoting, producing scripture, that would be utter chaos. Imagine every single believer Okay, that is on the earth today, able to speak at the level of scripture and adding to scripture. That would be utter chaos. I mean, we couldn't make heads or tails of what God is saying. So that can't be it. But here's another reason why this gift of prophecy that every believer has is not the same thing as Old Testament prophets and the apostles. Here's another reason. Oftentimes, Paul talked about New Testament prophecy in the church as something imperfect. It's something imperfect. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, we're, we're going to look at that a little later, but he literally says we prophesy in part. Another translation for that, I think the RSV says we prophesy imperfectly. He literally says that. The prophecy we have is imperfect. Look at 1 Corinthians 14.29. Paul's giving instructions here to the Corinthians church. Okay, they were Christians gone wild. It was a chaotic church. He's giving instructions. He said... When there's prophecy going on in your worship service, he said, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. So he's saying, take turns. Okay, only two or three at a time and take turns. So Paul here calls prophecy a revelation. So clearly, this isn't just like a teaching you heard, you know, something, an insight in the Bible. This is something that you got from God. It's a revelation. But then, but then look, Paul said what? But weigh it. He said, weigh it. Why? Because it's not going to be infallible. He is not going to be error-free. Like the prophecies of the Old Testament prophets or what the apostles wrote in Scripture. Okay, it's not going to be error-free. Oftentimes, it might be filled with things that are not from God. So the revelation God gives is perfect. Okay, he gives it without error to us, but apparently... After a New Testament believer receives that revelation, they can misunderstand it. Or they might understand it, but they miscommunicate it. So this seems to be what Paul is saying. If a revelation is made, is coming from God, he said, weigh it. In other words, test it. Paul makes this command even more clear in 1 Thessalonians 5.19. So this isn't just a one-off. He's talking to a completely different church, completely different congregation, and he told the Thessalonians, don't quench the spirit. Don't put out the spirit's fire, what he's doing. Do not despise prophecies. Just straight up, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Do you see the similarity there again? So how do you quench the spirit by despising prophecies? Apparently, people had a habit of doing that in the early church, even today. <laughs> I don't know about that, right? I don't, even, I don't even know if I believe in that. Paul said, don't quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But then he said, once a prophecy is given, don't just swallow it. 
don't just accept it as, thus saith the Lord. Paul said, test it. He literally says, test it. Test everything. Hold to what is good, and then anything else, whatever is evil, get rid of it. So Paul's instructions couldn't be clearer. Now for cessationists, these are people who believe the gift of prophecy and other miraculous spiritual gifts have ceased. That's what cessationist, cessationism means, is ceased. That's what they believe. And many cessationists are, you know, dear brothers and sisters in Christ. Many of them are great Bible teachers. I respect many of them. I have friends who are cessationists. But cessationists, they say when Paul commands us to weigh and test prophecy, they say, oh, he's talking about preaching. Okay, that's just another word for preaching. So for cessationists, prophecy in the New Testament is really preaching. I heard John MacArthur, who I respect, I, I respect him a lot, but I heard him literally say that in a sermon. He was teaching from 1 Thessalonians, and he said, here, the word prophecy, this is preaching. But what's strange about that is, if prophesying is the same thing as preaching, then what about all the women in the New Testament who prophesied in the churches? MacArthur didn't explain that. But Paul even gives instructions on how women should prophesy in the churches. So, according to the cessationists, are all these women preaching? Because prophesying is preaching. So are they all preaching in the New Testament church? But what's strange about this is that cessationists, like MacArthur, affirm Paul's prohibition of women preaching to the church in an authoritative way over men, which we also affirm as well because of what Paul teaches, the order of creation. But what about that? That seems like a contradiction then. I don't know. They don't explain. They don't have an explanation. So there is a contradiction there if you think that prophecy is the same thing as preaching in the New Testament. See, women didn't preach in the, the New Testament church. We don't see that anywhere, but they did prophesy. We see that everywhere. Women prophesied all the time. It says in Acts 21, 8 through 9, Philip the evangelist had four daughters who all prophesied. Amazing family. I'd love to have a family like that. It'd be interesting at the dinner table, right? <laughs> who knows? But he had four daughters who all prophesied. 1 Corinthians 11.5, Paul gave specific instructions on how women should prophesy in the church. When you prophesy, take turns, cover your head. I mean, he's giving instructions how women should do that. So then, here's the question. Then what is this? What is prophecy in the New Testament if it's not preaching? Now, don't misunderstand. I think there's elements of prophecy that can happen in preaching. The way we're going to define it, I think it can happen within preaching, but it's not preaching, though, overall. So if it's not preaching, if it's not what the Old Testament prophets did, thus saith the Lord, if it's not what the apostles did, writing error-free scripture, then what is it? Well, I like Wayne Grudem's definition. Many of you guys know who he is. He's a seminary professor, theologian, but after studying carefully, and by the way, I have his book here, but after studying carefully what the New Testament passages say on prophecy, it's a very scholarly work, but he says this is what he believes it is, and a lot of people have agreed. Prophecy in the New Testament church is telling something God or the Holy Spirit has spontaneously brought to your mind. I know this is weird. <laughs> Right? For some of you, you're going to be like, what? But it is telling something that God or the Holy Spirit has spontaneously brought to your mind, and then you speak it out. And so based on all these New Testament passages on prophecy, okay, this is his conclusion, and many people have agreed. But it is using your own words to report something that God has brought to your mind, something that God has revealed. And when God has revealed it to you, he did it, accurately, truthfully, and yet, where's the problem? Here, from our brain to our mouth. Something can go wrong here, and this is why Paul continuously said, test it, weigh it, test it, don't just swallow it. Hold to what is good, throw away what is bad. Okay, something, something could be off, so test it. So it is speaking what God has spontaneously brought to your mind by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus seemed to promise exactly this in Luke 12, 12, especially in the context of being a witness. Jesus himself seemed to say this. Luke 12, 11 through 12. And when they bring you disciples before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you 
Other translations say, will give you in that very hour what you ought to say. Don't worry about what you're going to say. In that very moment when you're being persecuted and you have to be my witness, the Spirit will give you what to say. So Jesus himself seemed to agree with this. So prophecy is something that God has brought to your mind, revealed to you that you will use your own words to report or, or tell. So it is not predicting the future. I mean, it could be. I mean, we don't determine what God reveals to people, right? It could be, but it's, but it's not predicting the future so much, but it is divinely empowered speech, in particular to be a witness. And oftentimes what God will bring to our minds is scripture. He will bring to mind the gospel. He will bring to mind his truths that are all laid out in scripture, but he will give you the right truth at the right time in the right way. In that moment, it'll come to your mind and you speak it forth or you speak it to other believers and you're being a witness. So is that clear? Maybe not. (laughs) It's okay. I'm taking a risk today presenting something that might be misunderstood, but it's okay. Okay, number three, third question. What is the duration of the spiritual gift of prophecy? What is the duration of the spiritual gift of prophecy? In other words, what's the time period that we should see this? Again, our passage in Acts tell us. Acts 2, 17, 18. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So here, Peter, quoting Joel, seems to make it very clear, and I don't know why people just, I don't know, they struggle with this. And that's okay. I mean, I've struggled with many other things that are clear to other people. But to me, when I read this, it's so clear when the time period is. Peter says, when? In the last days. In these last days, inaugurated by Pentecost, and that will end when Jesus returns. In this time period, the church age, the last days. It shall be, God will pour out his spirit, and then everyone, great and small, young and old, women and men, will prophesy. They will have empowered speech to be my witnesses. So this gift of prophecy is an eschatological gift, and that's a good word to know. Okay, I'm intentionally using it, but it's, it's worth knowing. But eschatological, that is an eschatological gift. Eschatology just means the study of the last days. The eschaton is the period of the last days. And so eschatological just means anything having to do with the last days, okay? Just memorize that word. It's a good word to know. You're going to come across it a lot if you study the Bible. But it, it, it is an eschatological gift. And this is where cessation is. I think they really struggle because they're talking about, oh, but it ended when the Bible was finished. And, but, but that's not what the New Testament teaches. This is for the end times, the entirety of the end times, not just when the Bible is finished after 30 years, Paul, you know, Paul died and then 30 years later. No, it's so clear. In the last days, during the eschaton, you will see these gifts. So they are eschatological. These gifts, and not just prophecy, but the gift of tongues, the gift of knowledge, which are the other two mentioned, dreams, visions, they belong in the period of the last days which again spans from Jesus' first coming, in particular Pentecost, all the way to his second coming. We're in the last days. Here's a more, even more clear passage where Paul tells us exactly when the time period is of these gifts because he tells us when they're going to end. He actually literally tells us when, he's, when it's going to end. 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 12. Okay, just hang with me for a little bit. But 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 12. Paul here is talking about spiritual gifts. Again, Christians gone wild. It was a chaotic church, the Corinthian church. Paul is now trying to rein in their abuse of gifts. And he is now talking about love. He's saying, okay, you're seeking gifts, but I want to show you the greater way. It's love. Love is far greater than spiritual gifts. And he's talking about the enduring nature of love. Okay, love is going to go way beyond this age into the eternal age. Love is forever but he has some important things to say about the gifts, okay? So he says, love never ends. It's far greater than spiritual gifts. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. Other translations say imperfectly. We know imperfectly. We prophesy imperfectly. 
But when the perfect comes, the partial or imperfect will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So here Paul is contrasting again love with spiritual gifts, and in particular, the charismatic, miraculous gifts. He's not talking about the gifts of administration or being hospitable. He's talking about, in particular, the miraculous, charismatic gifts, like tongues, prophecies. He's saying love is greater than them, and he's contrasting them. So he says here, love is perfect, but these gifts, right now, they're imperfect. He says love will last forever. These gifts, they will pass away. They will pass away. So I guess everyone's a cessationist. We're all cessationists. <laughs> I believe they're going to pass away. I believe they're going to cease. But I guess the difference is when will they cease? Okay, when will they cease? So we're all cessationists. Every Christian should believe that they're going to cease one day. But when are they going to cease? Okay, that's the key question. The people who go by the name cessationists today say, oh, it ended way back in the first century when the Bible was completed. But I don't think that's what Paul says here. Okay, what did Paul say? When will the gifts of tongues, knowledge, and prophecy cease? Well, Paul said, it's when the perfect comes. It's when the perfect comes. So now there's been this huge debate and struggle over what is the perfect. Brothers and sisters, I want you to track with me because this is so important. Okay, is, is this for us? We need to know, when did these gifts end? If they haven't ended yet, are they for us? Absolutely. So, so Paul said, they're going to end when the perfect comes. So what is the perfect? Well, if the coming of the perfect is the apostles finishing the writing of Scripture, then you're going to say the gifts have already ceased because the Bible's already done. So the perfect is when the Bible came. The Bible already came. The gifts have ceased. Okay, that's what you're going to believe. If you believe that the coming of the perfect is the church compiling the canon of scripture, the canon is just the collection of books that fit in the Bible, that belong in the Bible, right? When they finally decided all the books that should be in the Bible, when that was completed, then the perfect came. If you think that, then you're going to also say the gifts have ceased. The gifts have ceased. But if you believe that the perfect is not any of that, but if the perfect is Jesus' return, then you're going to say, no, the gifts haven't received, uh, ceased. And according to Paul, I believe this is what he's saying. Okay, the perfect coming is Jesus' second coming. So here he says, the perfect, when it comes, we will be face to face. Face to face? Yeah, face to face with the Bible. <laughs> I should have brought my Bible, it's right there. <laughs> But face-to-face -face with the Bible. The Bible's here. I'm face-to-face -face with... No, that is not what the Bible... That is not what this is saying. Every time the word face is used, especially in the Old Testament, it is always, always without exception, what? The presence of God. It is the presence of God. So when we are face-to-face -face with the risen Christ in his presence, then the perfect has come. Okay? Face-to-face. -face. He goes on. When the perfect comes, we shall know fully, even as we have been fully known. Known by who? Known by the Bible. No, not known by the Bible. Known by God. Known by Christ. So it makes sense. When the perfect comes, is Jesus' second coming. When he comes, we are face to face with him. We're also going to be known as we are fully known, because it's Jesus. And in that hour, when he finally returns, all these gifts cease. So we're all cessationists. It's just when, right? But they will cease. And it makes perfect sense why. Because these are imperfect ways to try to hear from God, to try to know God's will. And yet when you're standing in front of the risen Christ, you don't need them anymore. You don't need dreams and visions. You don't need spontaneous revelations in your mind. Jesus is talking to you directly. So it makes perfect sense. But in case you're not convinced yet, listen to an even clearer statement by Paul earlier in the letter that supports this view. Here, 1 Corinthians 1, 7, same letter. He said, you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? Paul says, while you're waiting for Jesus' coming, the revealing of Christ, his second coming, he said, while you're waiting for that, you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. In other words, how can we say they've ceased? They have not ceased. 
1 Corinthians 1.7. So what is the time period, brothers and sisters, of these gifts? It's right now. Right now. Okay then, finally, let's close with this. Question number four, what should we do then with the spiritual gift of prophecy? What should we do? 1 Corinthians 14.1, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Especially that you may prophesy. It's interesting. You know, I haven't really done an in-depth study on the Apostle Paul and his theology, but he seems to be really hung up on prophecy. He said, don't despise it, don't quench the spirit, you know, eagerly seek it. I mean, he seems to put a lot of value on this. And so in closing, what should we do with this spiritual gift of prophecy? Well, I believe if you've been tracking and if you've been agreeing with me so far, then the Bible says pursue it, desire it, seek it out. And I would, I would say, I would encourage you, begin by just learning what the scriptures teach on it. And like I said, don't be so attached to maybe what you heard growing up from your favorite pastor or church growing up, but cling, pursue, and search out and cling to what the Bible says. So that will be my first encouragement. After that, I would say talk about it with other believers because there is truth that can arise out of the community of faith. That's why we have each other. But as you begin to search these things out, talk about it with one another. How do you see this passage? How do you interpret this verse? But talk about it. Number three, I would say read quality books on it. I'm talking about real scholarly works, okay? Not just like the latest like fictional story on prophecy, but, but read real Bible teachers and what they have to say about it. This is a great one by Rain Grudem, The Gift of Prophecy. For example, there's many others. But read quality books on it. And then finally, I would say listen to all kinds of different testimonies See, I'm not even talking about you actually doing it yet, but listen to different testimonies of how God has used the gift of prophecy to bear witness to his son. So let me just mention a few, and, there, and there, there have been actually numerous ones, even in my own life, but let me just mention a few. But one time a famous pastor, he shared this story, but he had a very large church um, in the center of downtown London. I think you might know who he, who he is. But on one of the Sunday services, he was having this large worship service and a man came in, perhaps a little bit late, and then he sat right in the middle of the sanctuary and he was not a believer. And then this pastor began to preach a sermon and people were hanging on his word. And then at one point in the sermon, this man, this pastor, or to the man's great surprise, this pastor stopped his sermon, looked directly at him, and then this is what he said, I quote, you own this kind of business and you've been running around uh, on Sundays, avoiding God. And last week, you opened your business again to make this profit. And then he gave a very specific amount of how much he was making or how much he made last Sunday. And in that moment, this man, right, this non-believer who sat in the middle of the sanctuary, he almost fell out of his chair because everything that pastor said to him in front of everybody was true. He was like, oh my gosh, how do you know that, right? And so this man was confused. He got scared. And the pastor went on preaching after that. But then this man later realized that this must have been God. Okay, how could that pastor know this about me? It must have been the living God. And so the following Sunday, he kept his business closed and he came back to church. And then long story short, he, short, he came to faith. Okay, he accepted Christ. And that pastor was Charles Spurgeon. Okay, a darling of all Christians, but especially cessationists. But this is Charles Spurgeon who, and he didn't even agree with a lot of the teachings today on the charismatic gifts, and yet he operated in it. But in that moment, he spontaneously received the revelation and he just spoke it out. And this non-believer who was sitting there was shocked, utterly shocked, and then he came to faith. So this is one example. But I've seen this exact, almost this exact thing happening in my own life with my brother, and I've shared this before, but let me just quickly mention it again. I, I just, even the other day, uh, the other week, my brother and I were having lunch, and my brother mentioned this. I mean, it impacted him so deeply, he, he mentions it every time, or not every time, but periodically, whenever we get together. But this is years and years ago, but my brother, he was going through a very, very difficult time. Uh, he didn't really have a true faith in God, and then I invited him, hey, come up to a retreat we're having. My church is having a retreat. He's like, ah, I don't want to go. I said, no, come, come up, come up. He's like, fine. And later he told me the story, but he said on the way up, he was driving his truck and then he was getting so angry about his life. He was so upset at God. 
he literally said, God, if you're real, show yourself. And he used a swear word. I won't say the swear, but, but he used an expletive. And he just said, show yourself, God, on the way to the retreat. And then he came, he arrived, I greeted him. We came into the service. We sat next to each other. And I literally saw this happening in real time. But the guest speaker at the retreat stood up and he started the, re- the sermon in the weirdest way. But he's like, you know, I have a word today, but sometimes God will give me a word for just one person. Why would you start a sermon like that? It's just for one person. Everybody else, just forget it, right? Ignore me. I was like, what a weird beginning to a sermon. But he's like, sometimes it'll just be for one person. And then he just starts preaching. It sounds normal. And then maybe towards the beginning, like towards the middle, heading into the middle, he started veering from his nose. And you could clearly tell he was no longer preaching from his nose. And he just started making these declarations. Somebody here is so angry. He is so upset. He is like a ticking time bomb. And God sees you, right? And he just began to make these declarations and very specific pointed things. And you started, you know, like thinking about this and then you're, you're considering doing this and, and it began to, and as he began to say that, I looked over and then I kid you not, my brother started going lower and lower in his seat. <laughs> I'm like, hey, what's going on? What's going on, man? He's like, that's me. He said it, right? It could be for one person. That's me. I'm like, yeah, it sounds like you. <laughs> He's like, that's me, right? And then, I kid you not, his face was getting so red. I mean, my brother was not a believer at this time. He was getting so red. He looked like a turnip. And he was like, Roy, I got to get out of here. He's like, he's calling me out. He's going to call me to the front. I'm like, he's not going to do that. He's like, I got to get out of here. And I, and, I, and I held his arm. <laughs> I'm like, no, don't go anywhere. God's speaking to you. And so he stayed. And then shortly after that, he got saved. He accepted Christ. Now, there were some other things that happened. He went to an orphanage in Mexico, but God really met him there. But, but shortly after, he accepted Christ and got baptized. So do you see this? It is this kind of empowered speech. Now, again, I'm not saying we will all be giving miraculous insight into people's lives. I'm not saying that. But it's whatever God reveals to your mind, and oftentimes, it's just going to be Scripture, Here's some more testimonies, but I've just experienced this so many times in my life, I cannot deny it. But my mom, I, I believe my mom, she, she is a prayer warrior. I believe she has this gift. I mean, we all do, right? Every, it says it in Joel, Joel 2. We, we all have this gift. But my mom has exercises where she will periodically text me a Bible verse. And I'm going through something in that period, in that season of life, and then I'll go, oh, what's this? Oh, Bible verse. And I'll just look it up, and it's just speaking pointed things. He's calling me out on certain struggles I'm having. And then I'll call my mom and I'll go, mom, how did you know that that I needed this passage? And my mom, I kid you not, she said this more than once. She's done this more than once. She'll say, I don't even know what that passage is. And and I could tell on the phone, she's driving. She's like, I I just had this verse and I texted it to you. It came to my mind. She's like, what what is it? What, What is it? Isaiah 42, what is that? And I'll read it to her and she's like, oh yeah, yeah, that sounds like what you need to hear. She didn't even know what the passage was. Brothers and sisters, I've shared this as well. Just uh, maybe two years ago, I was very discouraged in a very difficult season in my life. I was sitting in my office working late at night. It was heading into like eight o'clock maybe, past eight. And I was just reading Psalm 27. I had just read Psalm 27, 13. As I'm preparing my message for that following Sunday in this very discouraged state, And as I had just read that verse, my friend who's a pastor in Arizona texted me going, hey, Roy, I've been praying for you. I don't know why he calls me Pastor Roy. He's my friend. (laughs) But he's like, hey, Pastor Roy. I'm like, just call me Roy. He won't do it. But he's like, hey, Pastor Roy, I was just praying for you. And this verse came to my mind. I want to share it with you. Psalm 27, 13. And when I read it, I didn't think much of it. I'm like, oh, yeah, whatever. I didn't say whatever, but I'm like, oh, okay, that's nice. And I put it down. And then I went back to my sermon prep. And then within seconds, I'm like, why does that look so familiar? And I looked at my, my notes. And I'm like, I just read that verse. And that verse, you know what it said? You will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And it just encouraged my heart so deeply. And so how did he know that I had literally read that verse? I'm preparing a sermon on that verse. And he texted it to me in that moment. And so brothers and sisters, I mean, those last two testimonies weren't about being a witness but God will use empowered speech for you to be a witness. 
he will bring things to mind. And more often than not, it will be scripture. It will be the gospel. It's a gospel that you've known your whole life, but in that moment, you're gonna say it in a way that you've never said it before. You're gonna have an insight into that gospel that you've never had before, just for your friend, just what your friend needs to hear, just what your family member needs to receive. You're gonna know it. Why? Because God put it there and you're gonna speak it out. That is the gift of prophecy, amen? And so, brothers and sisters, I just wanted to take a look. I just wanted to pause on that prophecy of Joel 2 in Acts 2 and just look at what really is this? Is this really for us? And I believe it is. I believe it is. You can be yours. It can be yours. So let's just come before the Lord. Let's uh, bow our heads. But God is a living God and he speaks. I've lost count how many times God has spoken so pointedly, so specifically. Even the other week, God spoke something to me which I will not share. It is part of my secret history with God, but, but it's just so surprising. How did you know God? Okay, how did you know that that is what I'm struggling with, that that is exactly what I'm thinking? But God wants to empower your speech. Okay, he wants to bring a revelation. And like I said, I'm emphasizing this but almost guaranteed is not gonna be anything new. It'll be something you already know, but it's gonna be a revelation, a fresh understanding of something you already know that he wants you to speak it out. It's gonna be an empowered presentation of the gospel, an empowered sharing of the gospel to somebody who desperately needs it. Okay, God will speak. God will speak. So let's just come before the Lord right now. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We, we come before you. We thank you. Lord, these gifts are eschatological. These are gifts in the last days. And if that doesn't apply to now, I don't know when it does. It applies now. So Lord God, help us. Help us, Lord. Help us to see what you really are saying in your word. Thank you, Father God. We give you all the glory.